Chapter One, Part Two of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Emerson, Part Two. I have hinted that the will in the old New England society was a clue without a labyrinth but it had its use nevertheless in helping the young talent to find its mould there were few or none ready-made tradition was certainly not so oppressive as might have been inferred from the fact that the air swarmed with reformers and improvers of the patient philosophic manner in which emerson groped and waited through teaching the young and preaching to the adult for his particular vocation mr cabot's first volume gives a full and orderly account his passage from the unitarian pulpit to the lecture desk was a step which at this distance of time can hardly help appearing to us short though he was long in making it for even after ceasing to have a parish of his own he freely confounded the two or willingly at least treated the pulpit as a platform the young people and the mature hint at odium and the aversion of faces to be presently encountered in society he writes in his journal in eighteen thirty eight but in point of fact the quiet drama of his abdication was not to include the note of suffering the boston world might feel disapproval but it was far too kindly to make this sentiment felt as a weight every element of martyrdom was there but the important ones of the cause and the persecutors mr cabot marks the lightness of the penalties of dissent if they were light in somewhat later years for the transcendentalists and fruit-eaters they could press but little on a man of emerson's distinction to whom all his life people went not to carry but to ask the right word there was no consideration to give up he could not have been one of the dingy if he tried but what he did renounce in eighteen thirty eight was a material profession he was settled and his indisposition to administer the communion unsettled him he calls the whole business in writing to carlyle a tempest in our washbowl but it had the effect of forcing him to seek a new source of income his wants were few and his view of life severe and this came to him little by little as he was able to extend the field in which he read his discourses in eighteen thirty five upon his second marriage he took up his habitation at concord and his life fell into the shape it was in a general way to keep for the next half-century it is here that we cannot help regretting that mr cabot had not found it possible to treat his career a little more pictorially those fifty years of concord at least the earlier part of them would have been a subject bringing into play many odd figures many human incongruities they would have abounded in illustrations of the primitive new england character especially during the time of its queer search for something to expend itself upon objects and occupations have multiplied since then and now there is no lack but fifty years ago 
the expanse was wide and free and we get the impression of a conscience gasping in the void panting for sensations with something of the movement of the gills of a landed fish it would take a very fine point to sketch emerson's benignant patient inscrutable countenance during the various phases of this democratic communion but the picture when complete would be one of the portraits half a revelation and half an enigma that suggest and fascinate such a striking personage as old miss mary emerson our author's aunt whose high intelligence and temper were much of an influence in his earlier years has a kind of tormenting representative value we want to see her from head to foot with her frame and her background having for we happen to have it an impression that she was a very remarkable specimen of the transatlantic puritan stock a spirit that would have dared the devil we miss a more liberal handling are tempted to add touches of our own and end by convincing ourselves that miss mary moody emerson grim intellectual virgin and daughter of a hundred ministers with her local traditions and her combined love of empire and of speculation would have been an inspiration for a novelist hardly less so the charming mrs ripley emerson's lifelong friend and neighbor most delicate and accomplished of women devoted to greek and to her house studious simple and dainty an admirable example of the old-fashioned new england lady it was a freak of miss emerson's somewhat sardonic humor to give her once a broomstick to carry across boston common under the pretext of a moving a task accepted with docility but making of the victim the most benignant witch ever equipped with that utensil these ladies however were very private persons and not in the least of the reforming tribe there are others who would have peopled mr cabot's page to whom he gives no more than a mention we must add that it is open to him to say that their features have become faint and indistinguishable to-day without more research than the question is apt to be worth they are embalmed in a collective way the apprehensible part of them in mr frothingham's clever history of transcendentalism in new england this must be admitted to be true of even so lively a factor as we say nowadays as the imaginative talkative intelligent and finally italianized and shipwrecked margaret fuller she is now one of the dim one of carlyle's then celebrated at most it seems indeed as if mr cabot rather grudged her a due place in the record of the company that emerson kept until we came across the delightful letter he quotes toward the end of his first volume a letter interesting both as a specimen of inimitable imperceptible edging away and as an illustration of the curiously generalized way as if with an implicit protest against personalities in which his intercourse epistolary and other with his friends was conducted there is an extract from a letter to his aunt on the occasion of the death of a deeply loved brother 
his own, which reads like a passage from some fine, old, chastened essay on the vanity of earthly hopes, strangely unfamiliar considering the circumstances, courteous and humane to the furthest possible point, to the point of an almost profligate surrender of his attention there was no familiarity in him no personal avidity even his letters to his wife are courtesies they are not familiarities he had only one style one manner and he had it for everything even for himself in his notes in his journals but he had it in perfection for miss fuller he retreats smiling and flattering on tiptoe as if he were advancing she ever seems to crave he says in his journal something which i have not or have not for her what he had was doubtless not what she craved but the letter in question should be read to see how the modicum was administered it is only between the lines of such a production that we read that a part of her effect upon him was to bore him, for his system was to practice a kind of universal passive hospitality. He aimed at nothing less. It was only because he was so deferential that he could be so detached. He had polished his aloofness till it reflected the image of his solicitor. And this was not because he was an uncommunicating egotist, though he amuses himself with saying so to Miss Fuller. Egotism is the strongest of passions, and he was altogether passionless. It was because he had no personal, just as he had almost no physical wants. Yet I plead not guilty to the malice prepense. Tis imbecility, not contumacy, though perhaps somewhat more odious. It seems very just, the irony with which you ask whether you may not be trusted and promise such docility. Alas, we will all promise, but the prophet loiters. He would not say even to himself that she bored him. He had denied himself the luxury of such easy and obvious shortcuts. There is a passage in the lecture, 1844, called Man the Reformer, in which he hovers round and round the idea that the practice of trade, in certain conditions likely to beget an underhand competition, does not draw forth the nobler parts of character, till the reader is tempted to interrupt him with, say at once that it is impossible for a gentleman. So he remained always, reading his lectures in the winter, writing them in the summer and at all seasons taking wood-walks and looking for hints in old books. Quote, Delicious summer stroll through the pastures, on the steep park of Conantum, I have the old regret, is all this beauty to perish? Shall none remake this sun and wind, the sky-blue river, the river-blue sky, the yellow meadow, spotted with sacks and sheets of cranberry-gatherers, the red bushes, the iron-gray house, just the color of the granite rocks, the wild orchard. End quote. His observation of nature was exquisite, always the direct, irresistible impression. Quote, the hawking of the wild geese flying by night, the thin note of the companionable titmouse in the winter day, the fall of swarms of flies in autumn 
from combats high in the air, pattering down on the leaves like rain, the angry hiss of the wood-birds, the pine throwing out its pollen for the benefit of the next century. End quote. From Literary Ethics I have said there was no familiarity in him, but he was familiar with woodland creatures and sounds. Certainly, too, he was on terms of free association with his books, which were numerous and dear to him, though Mr. Cabot says, doubtless with justice, that his dependence on them was slight, and that he was not intimate with his authors. They did not feed him, but they stimulated they were not his meat but his wine he took them in sips but he needed them and liked them he had volumes of notes from his reading and he could not have produced his lectures without them he liked literature as a thing to refer to liked the very names of which it is full and used them especially in his later writings for purposes of ornament to dress the dish sometimes with an unmeasured profusion. I open The Conduct of Life and find a dozen on the page. He mentions more authorities than is the fashion today. He can easily say, of course, that he follows a better one, that of his well-loved and irrepressibly elusive Montaigne. In his own bookishness there is a certain contradiction, just as there is a latent incompleteness in his whole literary side. Independence, the return to nature, the finding out and doing for oneself, was ever what he most highly recommended, and yet he is constantly reminding his readers of the conventional signs and consecrations of what other men have done. This was partly because the independence that he had in his eye was an independence without ill-nature, without rudeness, though he likes that word, and full of gentle amiabilities, curiosities, and tolerances. And partly it is a simple matter of form, a literary expedient, confessing its character, on the part of one who had never really mastered the art of composition, of continuous expression. Charming to many a reader, charming yet ever slightly droll, will remain Emerson's frequent invocation of the scholar. There is such a friendly vagueness and convenience in it. It is of the scholar that he expects all the heroic and uncomfortable things, the concentrations and relinquishments that make up the noble life. We fancy this personage looking up from his book and armchair a little ruefully and saying, Ah, but why me always and only? Why so much of me? And is there no one else to share the responsibility? Quote, Neither years nor books have yet availed to extirpate a prejudice then rooted in me, when, as a boy, he first saw the graduates of his college assembled at their anniversary, that a scholar is the favorite of heaven and earth, the excellency of his country, the happiest of men. In truth, by this term he means simply the cultivated man, the man who has had a liberal education, and there is a voluntary plainness in his use of it 
speaking of such people as the rustic or the vulgar speak of those who have a tincture of books this is characteristic of his humility that humility which was nine-tenths a plain fact for it is easy for persons who have at bottom a great fund of indifference to be humble and the remaining tenth a literary habit moreover an american reader may be excused for finding in it a pleasant sign of that prestige often so quaintly and indeed so extravagantly acknowledged which a connection with literature carries with it among the people of the united states there is no country in which it is more freely admitted to be a distinction the distinction or in which so many persons have become eminent for showing it even in a slight degree gentlemen and ladies are celebrated there on this ground who would not on the same ground though they might on another be celebrated anywhere else emerson's own tone is an echo of that when he speaks of the scholar not of the banker the great merchant the legislator the artist as the most distinguished figure in the society about him it is because he has most to give up that he is appealed to for efforts and sacrifices meantime i know that a very different estimate of the scholar's profession prevails in this country he goes on to say in the address from which i last quoted the literary ethics and the importunity with which society presses its claim upon young men tends to pervert the views of the youth in respect to the culture of the intellect the manner in which that is said represents surely a serious mistake with the estimate of the scholar's profession which then prevailed in new england emerson could have had no quarrel the ground of his lamentation was another side of the matter it was not a question of estimate but of accidental practice in eighteen thirty eight there were still so many things of prime material necessity to be done that reading was driven to the wall but the reader was still thought the cleverest for he found time as well as intelligence emerson's own situation sufficiently indicates it in what other country on sleety winter nights would provincial and bucolic populations have gone forth in hundreds for the cold comfort of a literary discourse the distillation anywhere else would certainly have appeared too thin the appeal too special but for many years the american people of the middle regions outside of a few cities had in the most rigorous seasons no other recreation a gentleman gray or gay in a bare room with a manuscript before a desk offered the reward of toil the refreshment of pleasure to the young the middle-aged and the old of both sexes the hour was brightest doubtless when the gentleman was gay like dr oliver wendell holmes but emerson's gravity never sapped his career any more than it chilled the regard in which he was held among those who were particularly his own people it was impossible to be more honored and cherished far and near than he was during his long residence in concord or more looked upon as the principal gentleman in the place this was conspicuous to the writer of these remarks on the occasion of the curious 
sociable, cheerful public funeral made for him in 1883 by all the countryside, arriving, as for the last honors to the first citizen, in trains, in wagons, on foot, in multitudes. It was a popular manifestation, the most striking I have ever seen provoked by the death of a man of letters. If a picture of that singular and very illustrative institution, the old American lecture system, would have constituted a part of the filling in of the ideal memoir of Emerson, I may further say, returning to the matter for a moment, that such a memoir would also have had a chapter for some of those concord-haunting figures, which are not so much interesting in themselves as interesting because for a season Emerson thought them so. And the pleasure of that would be partly that it would push us to inquire how interesting he did really think them. That is, it would bring up the question of his inner reserves and skepticisms, his secret ennuis and ironies, the way he sympathized for courtesy, and then, with his delicacy and generosity, in a world, after all, given much to the literal, let his courtesy pass for adhesion, a question particularly attractive to those for whom he has in general a fascination. Many entertaining problems of that sort present themselves for such readers, there is something indefinable for them in the mixture of which he was made his fidelity as an interpreter of the so-called transcendental spirit and his freedom from all wish for any personal share in the effect of his ideas he drops them sheds them diffuses them and we feel as if there would be a grossness in holding him to anything so temporal as a responsibility he had the advantage, for many years, of having the question of application assumed for him by Thoreau, who took upon himself to be, in the concrete, the sort of person that Emerson's scholar was in the abstract, and who paid for it by having a shorter life than that fine adumbration. The application with Thoreau was violent and limited. It became a matter of prosaic detail the non-payment of taxes the non-wearing of a necktie the preparation of one's food oneself the practice of a rude sincerity all things not of the essence so that though he wrote some beautiful pages which read like a translation of emerson into the sounds of the field and forest and which no one who has ever loved nature in new england or indeed anywhere can fail to love he suffers something of the amoindrissement of eccentricity. His master escapes that reduction altogether. I call it an advantage to have had such a pupil as Thoreau, because for a mind so much made up of reflection as Emerson's, everything comes under that head which prolongs and reanimates the process, produces the return again and yet again on one's impressions, Thoreau must have had this moderating and even chastening effect. It did not rest, moreover, with him alone. The advantage of which I speak was not confined to Thoreau's case. 
in eighteen thirty seven emerson in his journal pronounced mr bronson alcott the most extraordinary man and the highest genius of his time the sequence of which was that for more than forty years after that he had the gentleman living but half a mile away the opportunity for the return as i have called it was not wanting his detachment is shown in his whole attitude toward the transcendental movement that remarkable outburst of romanticism on puritan ground as mr cabot very well names it nothing can be more ingenious more sympathetic and charming than emerson's account and definition of the matter in his lecture of eighteen forty two called the transcendentalist and yet nothing is more apparent from his letters and journals than that he regarded any such label or banner as a mere tiresome flutter he liked to taste but not to drink least of all to become intoxicated he liked to explain the transcendentalists but did not care at all to be explained by them a doctrine whereof you know i am wholly guiltless he says to his wife in eighteen forty two and which is spoken of as a known and fixed element like salt or meal so that i have to begin with endless disclaimers and explanations i am not the man you take me for he was never the man any one took him for for the simple reason that no one could possibly take him for the elusive irreducible merely gustatory spirit for which he took himself Quote, it is a sort of maxim with me never to harp on the omnipotence of limitations least of all do we need any suggestion of checks and measures as if new england were anything else of so many fine people it is true that being so much they ought to be a little more and missing that are not it is a sort of king rene period there is no doing but rare thrilling prophecy from bands of competing minstrels End End of chapter one part two emerson